0: Your earwax,
1: <laughs> I don't really care about as long as your voice is quiet right now. if I can, right can hear now. better, it'll
0: bring the voice down lower. Will that help us right now, though? Well, we'll see. <laughs> I'm in the mood. start this like a, my podcast title lex friedman with some wise words from the past real quick this will probably get edited out but it doesn't matter to me <laughs> sounds like it already two roads diverged in a yellow wood and i took the one more truffled that's robertus frost I with two eyes and that means today, Noah's shaking his head to be right <laughs> over there in the corner. Um, all jokes aside, I am very excited for today. Today, we're sitting down with our very own Dustin Small, uh, joined Bissell Brothers Brewing Three Rivers with us at the beginning of last summer, and has been a person that I have just wildly enjoyed getting to know. Um, we'll try to keep it very short and sweet, but I became very interested a few years ago with like natural processes. And I I think I remember one conversation me and you had Noah late at the brewery, like two in the morning. And I'd seen some fucking article about mycelium. I think engineers use food sources to try to like recreate the Japanese subway rail system or something. And they kind of mimicked population with food source and this mycelium just boom, built out the Japanese railroad system almost to a T but it had made two changes from like the actual system. And those two changes were more efficient when engineers looked at it than what they, the humans had built to get the people around. I thought this was interesting, got really interested in like natural process and kind of what is mycelium. And I remember that. There's the question. What is mycelium? Mycelium. (laughs) But I remembered that as a, uh, one of the kind of late night, conversations that we had not long before we were like, let's start a podcast. Certainly not one about mycelium and natural processes because we know nothing about it but it was a catalyst to that one did not stick with me (laughs) (laughs) Um, but one that was a catalyst for starting a beer podcast Um, and excitingly so almost three years later we get to sit down today with a dear friend dear co-worker and somebody who does know an awful lot about mushrooms mycelium um, and natural processes because they have made a living and actively um, partake in foraging and, and mm. using that stuff and selling that stuff. Dustin Small, thanks for taking the time today to talk to us.
2: Yeah. So so stoked to be here, really.
0: <laughs> cool, man. Cool. I'm excited. One quick thing yeah. before, and then I mean, I'll shut up for a while. Uh, <laughs> but uh, even with the sentence that I just said, I found myself last night, we'll open it up with an easy question. As I was like doing the outline and writing stuff, I kept using the word things. Like I didn't know what to like, so Mm. when, when you're foraging for things or how do you know, like, do the trees tell you that you're going to be able to find some. Things here um, in terms of like terminologies outside of mushrooms. That one's easy when you're looking for mushrooms. But what's even like the terminology you would use for what things are you looking for when when you go out foraging?
2: Yeah, it's it incredibly diverse. Uh, fungi is a big, big uh, part of that. I do a lot of mushroom foraging, but also uh, berries, mm-hmm. uh, various herbs, um, plants, botanicals. Uh, those are all terms that you could use. Uh-huh. But botanical, anything that could be used medicinally, generally. Um, so like the mm-hmm. medicinal mushrooms are even thrown in that category sometimes or mm-hmm. um, s- some some plants that are out there that have medicinal qualities.
1: Killer. Maybe like nettles to call back to a, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. another. Uh, a
0: Fox Farm, maybe. Yes. Uh, Farm. Really
1: probably the, the – kind of long long place setup for this podcast. Yes. <laughs> um I think just because it's it in all the best ways is such a uh big big world to learn about. I think probably just an, an easy place to start would just be to to explain like which is always kind of my go-to question is like how how you found foraging and how it kind of became like a big part of your life because it's you know every, it's one of those everyone knows what that word is, mm. but you're the first person I've met that actively does it. And I've at this point in my life met a pretty good amount of people. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, so it's in that really that niche that I love that it's like a known thing, but that's kind of all it is for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just talk kind of about how that became a part. Yeah, of Yeah.
2: So I've lived in Maine my whole life and I think Maine has a culture of of foraging Uh um growing up uh, my parents weren't super into foraging uh like commercially or anything Mm -hmm. but um we were out in the woods all the time i grew up in industry small town 800 people Uh, we had nine acres i was running around with my friends outside across the brooks all the time so just always loved being outside um come spring every year though we would do brook fishing and pick fiddleheads um just enough for personal use to come home cook a good meal and I never really even liked fiddleheads growing up at all, but I, I really enjoyed the process of going out uh-huh. and gathering them. And then I started doing it commercially, um, shortly after my daughter Nova was born, yeah. um, out of necessity. I ran into kind of a hard spot in life was, uh, let go from a couple jobs. They were low minimum wage jobs anyway. I think yeah. I was making $10,000 a year. I had a wow, like an infant at home and, uh, we were living in a camper off the grid at the time and my father-in-law used to forage uh commercially. He did fiddleheads. Yeah. And um I I knew I knew where tons of fiddlehead spots were, so I just asked him about what his process was like and he was extremely helpful, a uh, great mentor. Gave me all of his foraging journals that he'd been keeping for 20 30 years that laid out all the spots he had timing of fiddleheads how much he's harvested from each spot and a lot of tips and tricks to make it like commercially viable um little fiddlehead f- treasure maps
0: wow
1: wow that's i, I didn't did not, that. i, did, I didn't, yeah and
0: I, if i did i just i wasn't paying attention when you told I, me i feel i would have
1: remembered just yeah. the the context for that because that is a man turns to to foraging, and it, it's like so cool, and yeah. it's and it's just so cool what you've wow. So I mean, at, what was that first year like? I guess when you are truly feeling like
0: Between about as much pressure play. as
1: you can, just in your life is like there's people depending on me. I, this needs to work one way or another. Obviously, I'm sure like Matt says, those, those treasure maps were like a godsend, but still, that's just for fiddleheads, which. Yeah. Uh, for context of people outside of Maine, is like a a celebrated thing for like a week in Maine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like a very narrow, mm-hmm. if, if my understanding, a very narrow window that they come about. Uh, they're really hard to prepare, and I think poisonous if you eat them raw. Right? Yeah. Um. So you know, kind of probably not a thing to build your entire foraging career around. Yeah. Um. So yeah, what what was just that first. Uh, first year, like, I guess when that became part of your like financial stream, No,
2: it it felt incredible because I mean, I, I wasn't making an extraordinary amount of money foraging, but, um, I went from working a minimum wage job, like I said, so I was making like 10 grand a year and first week of foraging, I harvested 120 pounds of ramps, uh, which is kind of like wild garlic or a wild onion. And, um, those grow right next to fiddlehead. So when my father-in-law was showing me all these spots, he also showed me spots where I could harvest ramps. And um, they sold for $12 a pound. And I wow. went out, like, every day that week. I, I made $4,000 my first week out foraging. Half, almost half was, of exactly what exactly your salary I felt exactly on top of the world. Like, <laughs> I was at such a low point before, like, was making barely anything, and then was fired and making literally nothing. And then Holy made, like, yeah, shit. half a
1: year's income in a week (laughs) holy shit man that's incredible so did you use that like okay this is possible to springboard into you know what's coming next yeah that's
2: exactly what my thought was um Unfortunately, uh, 2016, the first year that I was really getting into it, it was a record drought year. So Uh I was planning on going into mushrooms right after that because my father-in-law had uh, done mushroom harvesting as well. Um, Never really gotten into it, but through his journals, I found a few foolproof mushrooms that I felt confident that I'd be able to find. Um, But we we got almost no rain that year, and there was no no commercially viable spots for mushrooms at Uh. all. Um, so, and you said that was 2016. Yeah. So yeah. the bulk of my season was in the springtime. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was a good season. Um, it runs generally three weeks and I realized it could be commercially viable. Um, but you had to make some adjustments. So something my father in law did was go down all the way as far as Connecticut to extend his season and then as far up as a rustic county. So instead of a three week fiddlehead season, then you have six or eight weeks, depending if it's a fast or a slow spring.
0: Uh And You've talked to me about that before. Those things will come down there first Mm -hmm. and make their way north. So you'll go kind of get them at the bottom and kind of follow them all the way up. And that's what extends that that season to exactly. be longer. And
2: it feels really cool because it's uh, right early spring. So you feel like you're chasing the spring. It's still cold here yeah, yeah, <laughs> in Maine. And then you get to pop down to Connecticut or uh, Vermont and it's 20 degrees warmer. You feel yeah. the sun. It, it's negative
0: nice. 15 <laughs> this morning. <laughs> I'm chasing the fucking spring. Let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you, that summer was, you know, kind of a. Uh, kind of just a loss just by nature which is another part of why it's so interesting in the first place because it's it's like farming with less control really Mm. like far you you battle those are nature's like a huge part of agriculture in any way but since you're not it's not like you're irrigating these patches like you're not nature's responsible for the growth entirely you're just responsible for finding them um what kind of led into did you go down like deep down the rabbit hole of research knowing you, I would assume probably in preparation for the next the next year to try to, you know, not not strike out again and obviously out of your control. But
2: exactly. Yeah. The next year um, I got family members to help me. I knew roughly when the foraging season was going to be more or less what it looked like. So um went out. Every day possible with my dad, with my brother, with three of us picking, we were all encouraging each other to go faster. We were bringing in pretty good hauls, <laughs> and it was um, it was a good time too. Um, my father also had a boat, so we were able to go on a boat launch and find some islands that were on uh, my father-in-law's uh, map or journals. Wow, which were the
1: biggest Talk commercial about a treasure for real. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: and they just the benefit there—they're kind of untouched. Because less people can get to them and you'd have these kind of like treasure troves of stuff that just haven't been touched by other foragers. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Uh-huh. Um. The more rural the area generally, the more untouched it's going to be. Yeah. Um. One of my fiddlehead spots is on seven mile stream. Um. It's a little stream in Livermore, but you get a paddle with a kayak like five, six miles out there. Wow. And there's fiddleheads all along the way. Um, wow. <laughs> but um, yeah.
1: Um. So I guess beyond like uh to just get into specifics of, of what – because, you know, I talk about it a lot on here about I I kind of like the creative bounds in a way hmm. of, of what's available in Maine. It's not – sure as hell is not Florida where you have basically everything on earth, you know, can grow there. It's, it's the opposite of that. But there are – like a, you know, a very set amount of things that do grow here in a, a pretty reliable fashion. So what is sort of like your your overall catalog of everything of possibilities, I guess, that you're looking for now? Yeah,
2: there's an abundance of wild gourmet edibles out in Maine. But as far as um, ones that are generally sold commercially, that chefs and the general public know what they are, um I, Usually it's fiddleheads, ramps in the spring. Um, chaga is like year round. Um, then you get into the summer mushroom season, and that's when um, chicken of the woods, chanterelles, and black trumpets come. Mm-hmm. Of those, um, I sell it to restaurants and food co-ops. I mean, and, there's at and- least
1: two restaurants named after <laughs> or there's restaurants named after at least two of those mushrooms that I know of. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, chefs, chefs love the, the gourmet mushrooms for sure. And then um, come fall, that's the big, big mushroom season. And you get Hen of the Woods, which is the, probably oh, yeah. the, the one that I harvest most. Uh-huh. Um, and Matsutakis, which is another one, which is a delicacy over in Japan. And all of those are exported to Japan and go for a pretty good price.
1: Wow! You, so you do you do here. that
2: exporting? Um, I know a guy that um, that exports them. He's, so you bring he, them to him, and he gets yeah, them off to Japan. It's just his house in, in New Vineyard, mm-hmm. and you drive up, and he's got scales, and he weighs them all out, and gives you a little invoice. And
0: do those go for wow. a higher <laughs> price than than most other
2: mushrooms? They do. the The they're sorted into different grades, mm-hmm. so they're grade A all the way to. Uh, there's five different categories. Um, the grade A's are the button ones; they're the prime ones. Um, they used to be upwards of $1000 a pound um, but then when you get to the yeah. ones that are uh, all the way open um, they're $1 a pound so there's quite a lot of difference yeah you got to find them early when they're still buttons in the ground they hide under like pine needles and dirt and moss from a
0: <laughs> from like a an eating like consuming them quality why is the why are the buttons so much more prized um
2: I honestly don't know that I'm, I'm sure because it's quite a long journey for them to be exported um, longer shelf life. If they're more prime Word. and less likely to
0: have bugs that have like found their way into them. I had a uh, just re- hen of the woods that you talked about. Um, it's one I've, of the restaurants. I feel, I feel like I, I didn't see anything about foraging in the past and all of a sudden like, I maybe some of it's the bias of like knowing you and paying attention, but felt like all over social media, I saw tons of people foraging this year, but I went out and got some hen of the woods, brought them into the kitchen, cooked with them forever. You gave me some as well. And, um, the cooking with them was amazing. The bugs all over the kitchen really pissed off my girlfriend, <laughs> like literally having this like live just stuff everywhere, dirt everywhere. That's something I got to figure out how to. Have a better process for this year.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, field dressing. Um, you generally want to try to clean them up when you're out in the field. It's well, not always possible. Yeah. But, um, yeah. The better you can do at bringing them home clean, it makes the problem a lot, a lot better. Uh,
1: I got some tips. Yeah. <laughs> some tips. I'm sure there's more to come, but, um, and not to go, not to totally derail this into this, what seems like a pretty small niche, but. Um, I can't remember the, the, that Japanese delicacy, but w- what was the name? Um, Matsutaki. Matsutaki is the common name. Okay. I, I'm conf- It's very interesting to me. I'd like how those would be a, not have a market here, I guess, if it seems like mm-hmm. delicacies have globalized in a lot of ways, especially with, you know, Japanese, Japanese cuisines, like really big, most places, um, so so they like japan's the only place that wants them um for a lot of reasons it's a delicacy
2: over there traditionally they're given as like wedding gifts it's just oh, like a ceremonial wow. yeah. like, price a, tag a makes wooden box box more sense. With a couple of matsutakis in oh them. wow um okay but there is a market from them over here the price is just a lot lower because uh-huh. they grow in quite a few states in the united states they need these old glacial zones to grow um wherever you find them they always have a little bit of this gray soil at the bottom and if huh. that's so- that soil was like scraped off by the glaciers as they retreated and if that that's not in the soil um they're not going they to grow in that environment wow. wow um i think they used to grow naturally in japan i've heard that they've decreased or you can't find them anymore and that's part of, that's the, big part demand. of the demand that's what i would
1: have to cause, assume because like how would they just yeah um that's incredible yeah it's super cool um and that kind of leads me into it just another thing of i think for naturally like for most people i don't i don't know about most people for me i've always been scared like like going hiking or whatever and uh usually it's with jeff uh who is a coworker down in portland um and you know we'll see a mushroom or whatever, and he'll just he'll he'll just be like ah oh, fuck it and pop one, and and, and okay. he has I think a little more knowledge than me of just basic stuff, but I would never ever ever do that. Yeah. Um. So I guess talk about like the, you know it's like there's there's no identifier but you like mm-hmm. you have to be making the call whether or not this is safe to eat. I, I guess just yeah talk about that process, the learning of it if you've ever had any uh you know close calls or or whatever you'd call them
2: <laughs> so i've eaten dozens and dozens of different species of mushrooms never been poisoned at all my uh-huh. kids eat the same mushrooms i do my rule is i, I won't eat anything unless i know 100% what mm-hmm. it is uh if i'm think i'm 99% sure i'm not going to take the risk um I have to 100% identify it. But what I like about mushrooms is it's such a sensory experience. Um, there's so many ways you can identify it. And if it checks all the boxes, you generally know That's what you
0: That's your 100%. Have. Uh, mm-hmm. You
2: definitely want to look into lookalikes, but there's spore prints you can take. And mushrooms have usually a unique spore... Uh, color or pattern. Some of them are more complex and you have to look at the spore
1: under a microscope to identify it. Can you just break that down just very quickly uh, for, uh, spore print, like what exactly that means? The fingerprint of the mushroom. Well, yeah, yeah. What's that look like? Yeah, so (laughs)
2: mushrooms drop spores, which is how they reproduce. Uh Um, Spores land somewhere, and when they find a food source, they'll start eating it. Um, They'll form, like, this network and connect each other together and then just start growing out in all different directions, and that's mycelium. Um, But the spores, like I said, are a unique characteristic to each species of mushroom. So you can cut the cap off a mushroom... Uh, put it on a piece of paper, and put a bowl over it, and um, the the humidity will cause them to release the Mm. spores because uh, mushrooms, I think, are intelligent. They realize, uh, at least biologically, uh, when they're in a humid environment, it's time to reproduce because that's the ideal. Conditions for mushrooms growing. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you'll remove the bowl after a couple hours. Some people do it for 12 hours or a day, it generally works after just a couple hours. Um, you'll it will leave a print almost like a really artistic cool looking print uh, wow. on a piece of
1: paper, like some arrival shit and <laughs> that, like, legit, uh, yeah, yeah. and you that, that identify
2: later. it, but people also are saving uh rare species mushrooms by having like spore banks so you can uh-huh. collect them and store them um safely like between glass and they'll last for years and years
0: Wow wow, so you queue up a yeast bank mm-hmm. a yeah later,
1: um well that that was amazing and super understandable too which i think is is one of your really good gifts about talking about this stuff because it is heavy's not the word just come it's literally complex mm-hmm. um but to go back to where i derailed derailed you um just talking about like yeah the I, um i don't know it's just such a scary thing to me to 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 yeah. be like to be no when you're sure. So. so,
2: um having a mentor gave me a lot of confidence too. Uh, I could go uh-huh. right to my father-in-law and be like, "Look what I found." Uh, the first edible mushroom I found was a morel, which are um one of the most prized mushrooms every spring. They're like the first mushroom to pop up in the woods. People go nuts over them. And uh, some states they're pretty prolific, but in Maine they're very very rare. The mats, and I just heard you of or, uh, uh,
0: the Mattis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> but yeah, I'd heard a lot about morels and I'm like, I'm going to give this mushroom hunting thing a-, a-, a try. So I went out into the woods and after looking at pictures online and talking to my father in law and then found what I thought was a morel just like sticking right out by an apple tree. And I brought it home, started doing research, and that's really what got me to go down the rabbit hole. From there, I was just finding all these interesting facts about mushrooms, mycelium, and it was blowing my mind every day. I couldn't believe the stuff that I was reading. Mm -hmm. Um, And then going out into the woods after that, I was seeing mycelium and mushrooms just... Everywhere, and it mm. was something that was such like so overlooked before. But, Started to see it all differently. Yeah, after but, getting um, the knowledge, the morel. Once I confidently identified it, so it, it was home. was one. Yeah, uh-huh. Went through all the characteristics. I knew it was good. Fried it up, ate it. Tasted like a prime steak, and oh. I was I was hooked. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but there's there's deadly mushrooms for sure. Like I said, you need to be 100 percent sure. Um, But there's deadly plants too. It's just the same thing as foraging plants or berries. You just have to know what it Mm -hmm. is that you're foraging, but you can use the smell. You can use the taste. As long as you don't ingest um, a toxic mushroom, Mm -hmm. you won't be poisoned from it. So some mushrooms you actually put in your mouth, chew and spit it out um, to taste it because they might have a peppery taste or something else. And that helps identify it. Wow. And they have incredible aromas. So, um, Often, I'll smell mushrooms before I see them. The Matsutakis are a good example of that. Uh, people say they smell like dirty socks and cinnamon.
0: Um, <laughs> oh, I, yeah, uh, baby.
2: <laughs> I, I smell, smell it in the woods. It's really distinct. Once you smell it, you'll never forget it. Wow. But, um, Wow! I I smell it and I know they're there and that's when I start looking around closer. Wow! Dirty
1: socks in the building. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool, man. I mean, I feel like I we I have to talk a little bit more about mycelium and just the the nature of it because it it is just such an important part. I know it's a you know a, Certainly. a tangent I
0: passion project of Matt. <laughs> I'm so. Not a, like like all things. I feel I ha, I don't have this deep knowledge of it, but I, some things just feel like super intuitive. Like, I'd stumble across a thing and I'm like, oh my God, that makes a ton of sense. Um, and in talking to you, what I've really begun to, to dissect, not to put too much on you, but I, I found at a time when I was really trying, like COVID and everything made me kind of check, like what is my viewpoint of the world and how, how well formed is it? How much work have I done to form it? Or am I kind of just bopping around, like, believing, just operating based on reaction and stuff like that? And that's where the natural processes got interesting to me. COVID certainly made me look at a lot of things politically about how I feel. And then I I kind of ran into you and feel like in my heart, I'm a capitalist and I believe in a lot of these things. In your heart, when I talk to you, you're very much about being symbiotic with nature and living with nature, not, like, extracting from it. And we kind of had these two of opposing ethos viewpoints, but then they kind of both, to me, almost intersected, like, at mycelium. Um, <laughs> and we both, like, the the talk about it and, like, because my thing is, like, that that thing's been here forever. It's one of the oldest things on the planet. It's one of the biggest organized organisms. And I started to get this sense, like, as I looked at it, like, Well, I bet that's a lot of like what a neural pathway looks like in your brain and kind of all these big things. And that's what kind of began to drive the technology should like occur through nature. shouldn't be something we do to hurt nature. It should be something we take our resourcefulness, study nature, and then mimic those processes. You seem to have a, obviously have a much better understanding than I do when it came to, I want to hone in on that moment. You said when you went looking for the knowledge and then you kind of started to, see everything differently and really fall in love Mm. with mushrooms what is it about mycelium and mushrooms you called them intelligent i choose to believe that they're intelligent um what is it about them that that kind of grabbed you and and has shaped your view of the world
2: yeah like i said i was hooked from the beginning so i wanted to dive into things um it really was the first time in life that I remember being like super excited about learning. I was never like a good student in school or anything, but um, uh, yeah, super excited about learning uh, anything I could about mushrooms. And I just realized there's so much that we could learn from them directly in yeah. observation. Like you said, they're the oldest, uh, one of the oldest life forms on mm-hmm. Earth. They really bring diverse life. Life without mushrooms, there wouldn't be us. There wouldn't be anything like us on Earth because mushrooms create soil. They're the, the decomposers. They're they're recyclers mm-hmm. of nature. So when um, things die, or even complex uh, material like rocks, like certain mushrooms have enzymes that can break break those down um, and create fertile soils. Yeah, um, then plants come. Insects are attracted to the mycelium and feed off carbon that is being stored in the mycelium, so... There's
0: another big point for
2: storing carbon yeah yeah. Yeah. and uh they bring in insects which brings in birds which brings in other animals so um they just create incredible biodiversity uh paul stamets incredible mycologist Mm -hmm. uh, did an experiment where they were trying to clean up oil uh, oil spill with mycelium because mycelium can eat anything that's carbon based and uh fuel is just hydrocarbons yeah so they inoculated this pile of just sopping wet material like covered (laughs) in oil with uh, mycelium covered it up with a tarp uh, a few weeks later took the tarp off it was covered in mushrooms but it was also covered with birds and uh, bugs it was just this thriving pile of life that was dead just weeks ago (laughs) and the mushrooms were tested and they were actually edible still.
1: Wow. Um, so Oil, no worries. I yeah. think
2: if if an organ, like there's been fossils of mycelium that 2.4 billion years old, yeah. I think if, like you said, if something's been around for that long, it's we could learn that a has lot to be from intelligent that. and we should mm-hmm. pay a bit more attention to it. Um, and just the practical uses too, like um, moldy bread, um, the green mold on bread used to be put on wounded soldiers' legs in The civil war because they found that it would fight off infections they didn't know exactly why but in 1942 uh penicillin was discovered and that was the same family of fungus that was growing on a cantaloupe but it grew super aggressively and they were able to produce it at a commercial scale and some people claim that helped us win world war ii because we had access to um to penicillin and i didn't know penicillin
0: was a fungus
1: Wow. And yeah, all Germans had access to was methamphetamine. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you do the math. Um, so, and just for the visual element, because it, it, talking about mycelium, I mean, I'm blown away by most of what you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, but the visual, like the, the, talking about the cantaloupe, to me, my I think of mycelium almost looking s- somewhat similar to what is on the outside. I know that is not the same but the pattern of kind of like a cobweb but a very like tightly wound one and thick and yeah I I guess if you can try to because I, I think definitely for a lot of people, that would not be something you really know about. Mm. Um, so maybe to t- try to describe the, the visual nature and formation of mycelium, which is like the foundation of the rest of it.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it, it starts off, like I said, with a spore. Um, spores will start feeding on any material they can. And when they grow together... And connect together that forms a mycelial mat, and that's what the organism of a mushroom really is. the vast The vast bulk of it is underground all the time. Wow, it lives there um, often year after year. They're not a lot of mushrooms aren't annual. They'll have mycelial mats that lay dormant, and the the mushroom that
0: you see is just the fruiting body when it's time for it to reproduce and make spores. And real quick, that's <laughs> is that that's why the journals are so effective, because if once you kind of find a, a honey pot. You can keep revisiting yep. them over and over uh, again. Any
2: symbiotic mushroom that has formed a relationship with a tree. So uh, like mycelium connects to trees and other plants um, generally hang out for a long time, 20, 30, 40 years. So once you find a spot of symbiotic mushrooms like chanterelles or like matsutakis mm-hmm. um, that have formed a relationship with specific trees um y- you can mark that spot in a gps or on a map and come back to it year after year so Joey. like each year you can exponentially grow the more spots you find
0: yeah
1: real quick um on just just to because i talk go into a little more about what you mean with like formed a relationship with the tree what does that really yeah. mean with symbiosis so the
2: mycelium has all these little almost like antennas that go out or like tentacles uh, they they grow cell by cell in all directions and three dimensionally so that's why it forms like that like thick cobwebby mm-hmm. substance um, but they'll also wrap themselves around the roots of trees. And you mentioned uh, storing carbon earlier. Mm-hmm. Trees, everybody knows, is excellent at yeah. breathing in CO2. <laughs> they pass 70% of that along to mushrooms underground. and The uh, unsung hero.
1: So, yeah. so wow. the
2: mycelium, the carbon uh, molecules will actually stick to the cell walls of the mycelium and become stable. And then bugs will feed on the mycelium. And that that puts carbon back into the system. So, like, it directly translates the carbon from the air to the tree to bugs to birds. So, mm-hmm. it's back in the system stably instead of floating in the air like greenhouse gases. Wow.
0: Yeah. Wow. It's wild. And real quick, this is stupid, but as a little bit ago, <laughs> Elon posted a thing of, like, I'm looking for anybody working on carbon sequestration devices. Send me your projects. Um, I want to fund some of these projects. Da-da-da. And some guy's, like... Trees. You're talking about fucking trees. Yeah. <laughs> what, but what the, the, trees? these
2: relationships take years to form. So yeah. old gro- growth forests are incredibly important. And because of extensive logging, mm-hmm. there's no old growth forests really um, in Maine, definitely. But in much of the United States, you have to go out west to get those big to get to old redwoods. Um But... Um so often there there's probably potentially mushrooms that could be uh incredibly incredible improvements to the medical uh industry or who knows what um that haven't popped up because they don't have the old growth trees that they've um, had that time to form that relationship
0: with and just real I'm familiar with that and have thought about that a lot it just became again like even aware of what an old growth forest is like 6 months ago but i mean it's just so Old growth forests will be almost have a better system in place of sequestering carbon than a new growth forest will be able to do it. And that's essentially just kind of like anything else. It's had more time to develop and get better and be more efficient yeah, at it. From sort what of I thing.
2: understand, uh, a forest that was recently logged yeah. will put off much more CO2 than a forest that, uh, it is old growth. It yeah. has more biodiversity. Um, one of the biggest emitters of CO2 is just coming from the ground because that, that CO2 is not quite stable yet.
1: Um, uh, just because not
2: enough and there, time there, there, is And passed. there's microorganisms that are exhaling CO2 and yeah. putting off CO2 as waste that are coming up into the air.
1: We're doing it right now.
0: Not to pivot to is that where like desertification and like the Monsanto stuff, if you have this ground that has lost its – essentially biodiversity and kind of become dead that will actually compound the problem because it'll emit instead of capture
2: yeah and what's amazing about mushrooms is they're constantly trying to keep these ecosystems in balance it's almost that's why i say they're intelligent because it's almost like they can sense all these variables and uh, solve problems um so uh the honey mushroom is always seen as a parasitic mushroom it grows on uh, birch trees a couple other trees and it will kill them And it it grows on them while they're alive. It doesn't just take over them when they're dead. It will start growing on them and it will kill them. Um, but scientists have observed that what that does is create open pastures, and it generally happens in an area that's depleted um, – the soil is depleted of nitrogen. And once there's God an open damn. pasture, um, damn. herding animals will come in, leave their droppings, and that replenishes the soil with nitrogen, and then a new forest grows up that's more bio- biodiverse mm-hmm. and more successful
0: at uh, sequestering carbon. That's incredible they can build a better subway system, Uh, i I buy it.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, talk, I guess, uh, you know, I I know that's a pretty famous Mm -hmm. study, obviously, but like even just that, uh, like that oil mound, talk more sort of about that intelligence because it seems like there's enough examples where Mm -hmm. it's like pretty hard to argue with. But I guess maybe to start with that subway thing for those that are not familiar with it, sort of what, what that proved potentially yeah so uh
2: it proved how incredibly efficient um mm. these mushrooms are and how i i think incredibly intelligent they are because they they had to make decisions uh pretty much um a maze was set up and there was different things that mushrooms could eat spread in various points along this this board And they were placed like geographically, how they'd align with the major cities. Population. The population. um, I think it was Japan or, uh, yeah. But the mushroom, the mycelium mat that grew, it was a slime mold formed a pattern, um, of its mycelium that created pathways that were more efficient pathways to each of these major hubs of food and nutrients than what the
1: the subway system of like tokyo was i mean just crazy so so like they i guess for for me to fully visualize they basically in terms of how a mycelium would would comprehend obstacles like a building or rivers or whatever in a city that you know a subway system would have to figure out how to go around those were pretty much uh the the parallel of that for mycelium was put in place in it to scale on on a board
2: yep from Uh what, from what i understand they tried to create the food sources located in a way that would represent trying to create the most efficient path between all of them um it it creates networks between
1: between hubs um so what? What? Where do we go from there? Uh, that sounds like an end of end of the th- thing question, and that's not uh, not where I'm trying to go. But it's it.
0: it Can I take? That, that yeah, I want it's you, right up your alley. Something <laughs> that I didn't know. Getting ready for this part of the this specific conversation, as I looked a little more, was that us being us. Um, you mentioned Japan and kind of that mushroom culture, and they're not there anymore. I was. In the world as Anglos were coming about, mushrooms held incredible reverence in some ancient, not older cultures, and the further you go back. And mushrooms had built up this incredible reverence, almost like a lot of people did have a sense of kind of what's going on here with these things is intelligent, special, whatever word you want to use. And then for from what I can gather for kind of like imperialist reasons and kind of in the name of takeover anglos really rebelled against mushroom culture and kind of squashed it because we come to culture. these places didn't whatever they got going on is like Fuck a, that. almost a threat to us imposing <laughs> yeah. our thing. And we squashed a bunch of mushroom culture. I had no Probably idea. Probably literally. Probably literally <laughs> a lot of boot stomping. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Japan I, was one of these that had quite a reverence for it. And then a bunch of others. And we kind of get to this place that we're at now with a better understanding of science. And you have people, um, me and Noah... Talk a bit about like Neary Oxman and some of these mostly peop- you, <laughs> some of these people that are really studying natural systems and how to use it. You mentioned Paul Stamets. I think the recent, um, I forget the school, but there was a recent study about mushrooms and depression, PTSD, some of this stuff that really gave it uh, legitimacy in the scientific community. A couple of these little catalysts start to open it up. It seems like it's starting to grow again in America, and we're kind of working against we'd shut this thing down for a while, and now we're realizing it and playing catch-up. And kind of with whatever context you want to do with that, to Noah's question – I feel um, that there is a time in, in America and kind of at large where this is beginning to get a lot of attention and notice that there are answers to a lot of questions through these, these things. Um, what do what, It must be frustrating for somebody who has realized it to see us not using it effectively or things like that. What do you think from a tangible perspective can be solved with mushrooms and mycelium?
2: Yeah, I think the possibilities are um really limitless. Um it's already been proven to be effective as um medicinal compounds. Mm-hmm. Um the reason that it can be the biggest and longest living like organism is like it's it has incredible antiviral, antimicrobial um properties, it secretes these enzymes that put these microorganisms that compete with it at
1: bay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why um, rubbing that's, bread on a wound. Exactly. Uh-huh. So
2: like if you come in contact or develop a relationship with the that mushroom or that fungus, um, you can absorb some of those um, antiviral, antimicrobial uh, properties. There wow. could be fungus out there that is effective against viruses, which is very <laughs> relevant. Like we're in a pandemic right now. <laughs> um, I didn't want to so, make the joke. But um yeah so in the medical field there's incredible potential we talked about uh sequestering carbon mm-hmm. um Paul Stamets is using it to uh save the bees um because he he's got this big thing going on right now where he found that if bees Chew on mycelium extract, they get those antiviral, antimicrobial properties. And it's viruses that have been killing off bees like crazy. Really? Yeah. There's like a deformed wing virus, I think it's called. And it makes them have really small wings. They can barely fly. And it cuts their like flying time from, I think, close to a week to just three days, which cuts back on population and, uh, and pollination and, um, success of farmers t- t- all sorts all of the industries. things that they're
0: deeply interwound But
2: if they uh, consume this extract, mycelium extract, um, it cut the, the virus down by eighty percent, which is incredible and worked better than any pharmaceutical out there. And it was 100% natural ingredient. Um, and that's one of the first time this has been published in journals. Um, this is one of the first times that a, a natural ingredient has been found to be that much more successful than a um, synthetic pharmaceutical
0: Incredible. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Um, So I think there's a lot more out there that we haven't even tapped into. Um, Packaging. um, They're using it
0: already as a styrofoam. Yeah. yeah, So mycelium
2: can be grown over pretty much these um, blanking on the word right now, but. The, the, these cutouts of whatever they want the object to look like yeah um it grows With, over it um, uh like mold yeah, like a exactly. mold With uh, that that that
0: temp- that's what it is <laughs> <laughs> it's really predictable when you and then you can control temperature and airflow to to grow it into the shape that you want exactly. to exactly so into. you
2: grow it into a mold of whatever you want your packaging material to look like and then they're able to heat it to a certain temperature dry it when it's super super thick and it's a material that is almost like styrofoam but it's um not flammable. Um, it's a lot of other good properties, too, that keep the whatever you're shipping actually safer as well and can be produced on just, massive scales. And then um, just goes back to the earth. Yeah. Um, so p- packaging and um, then um these mental illnesses too um mm-hmm. more psychological illnesses PTSD depression anxiety both psilocybin mushroom containing mushrooms and um lion's mane which is a, just an edible gourmet mushroom yeah. have shown to have um uh, ma- incredible neurological benefits
0: And it seems to be from uh, the way you describe it is almost looking like the top of a cantaloupe. I really think like it when we get a better understanding of the neural networks and pathways that kind of maybe a very stupid way to think about it. But like that, it almost is like the planet's neural network and pathway of all this connection. But that's why when you take some of these mushrooms, I think what they're finding in these psychological studies is it it. Opens up networks in the brain, like parts that weren't able to either haven't in a long time or can't connect with each other anymore. They start to connect with each My other. My just fills it. Connects the gap. Them. It does that spider web thing. Uh-huh. It connects parts of the brain. And then I'm getting the sense that with the proper understanding of that and therapy around that with with a psychologist that know or, or psychiatrist that knows what to do with those pathworks opening in terms of guiding you and doing that Could have you been can me. start to solve some of these things <laughs> still can be baby. Still can <laughs> but be. yeah
2: and just like the observations too like um they're so successful because they're not only thinking of themselves. They are mm. trying to create these vast biodiverse, uh, ecosystems where everything works together and benefits each other. And then like essentially mycelium mushrooms, a single living organism could live forever because it's, it's so good at fighting off competition. Nothing can really kill it. Um, when it gets to a certain size until it runs out of food as long as it has sources of food um it will keep growing forever um and mushroom growers use that to their advantage at home you you can take mycelium um keep running it keep giving it food sources expand it to other jars and essentially have a like self-sustaining uh very efficient uh way to grow a
1: food source, which is incredible. They're super regenerative. Ah. Just to play devil's advocate for uh, a moment, it I would seem like there would, it, and my like in a brain just flooded with you know all the fears of AI and all the, and everything. But like it, in, how do we justify that if if it's if if you do want to if you um, feel it's an intelligent organism, how would it be? Truly clear that they have every, everything else's interests at heart in, in obviously a matter of speaking, especially when we're then using it to make fucking styrofoam like basically <laughs> probably the lowest <laughs> just a slap in the face to mushrooms everywhere um if that's be... true like you know in 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 it seems like you could take it to the logical place of like mycelium just takes is the world and that's it we end you, you up know what co- I, mean? I mean we end
0: up becoming birch trees yeah right <laughs> real, yeah right
1: for
2: real it, it essentially it is it's everywhere um Under one footstep of like like ground soil, there's 300 miles of mycelium, and that's wait, like say that that again. (laughs) And because of all, it grows three dimensionally, and because of all the directions it grows and the networks it makes. Under one, if you
1: stretch it out to like a string yeah, like under nine, one
2: footstep there's like 300 miles worth of mycelia 300 miles? and that's everywhere in the world connecting trees, plants, organisms and that's why I say is I, I do think in a way they're more intelligent than us, we just don't realize that because you can't communicate with them, they can't sure. tell us that but by uh, observing and seeing how long they've been here, what they do how important they are not just to themselves but to insects birds uh everything um the carbon cycle of the earth um they're
1: really crucial so Mm -hmm. so i guess it it doesn't seem like if if there's already i guess that's really the perspective i need if there's already 300 miles (laughs) under each footstep the the fears of of mycelium taking over the world in like uh Hostile takeover <laughs> uh, fashion seems pretty low, no, especially with their timeline of, like, you know, we've had chances to do that. They're
2: beneficial to us, too. Like, they they eat dead wood. So when natural disasters come in and, like, knock all the trees in a forest over, um, if it wasn't for vast amounts of mycelium, um, that would just keep piling up and piling uh-huh. up. Wildfire issues. Mm-hmm. Pe- forests that don't have good mycelial mats. um, tend to burn a lot easier because mycelium actually holds tons of moisture in the soil which helps with wildfires but also um it clears up any dead litter or leaf litter dead wood that's on the ground so that's not piling up massive if you've taken all the mycelium um or fungal diversity out of a environment then um you're going to get more of that pile up and wildfires
1: are going to be a lot worse how about in deserts is 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 mm. i obviously moisture is a huge component and important part um yeah is if if you're you know walk a footstep in the gobi is there also 300 miles under under that step
2: <laughs> um i do under the sand specifically i'm sure underground at some point
1: at uh, some point yeah
2: they can live um, aquatically so they can survive in water so i'm sure they're in groundwater i'm uh-huh. sure um they're deep under the desert, um, and that they they're uh, grow fungus on cactuses and
1: uh huh. So they're there probably just a little deeper than yeah. uh-huh. wow. Um, so, that's uh, fucking crazy. But I want, to your
0: point, when I thought the you take their timeline, my and then you take ours, and if like we right. were to be a real threat to the life of mycelium at any point, and like kind of don't have the the. Do you think they would eighty six so, us? Will be? I believe we'll be eighty six, and they won't. Maybe just yeah. oh, like, well. if, when it comes to us. For the, sure. when it comes to the two point four <laughs> yeah. billion or the couple hundred, thousand, <laughs> yeah, they've got it. Yeah. I re- I really believe that. And then you also don't know what we're doing to maybe help or facilitate that because you don't have the scope big enough. But I do your your ethos of of seeing how well that lives with everything. Um, and I think that's where you really combat me on where capitalism and mining re- can be very much for the singular, the good of the singular self, um, is something I've really thought about a lot and does, has kind of shaped what I think about over the last, um, couple of years. I just want to give you the nod for that. Yeah. Uh, it does make sense. And, and mushrooms are cool
2: beca- because they're so regenerative. So, um, you have to harvest them in a sustainable way, but they are so regenerative that I feel fine harvesting them commercially and Mm -hmm. selling them myself too. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think it creates a lot of potential in relation to climate change and solving tons of different problems that climate change presents um, because you can use the mushrooms towards your advantage without major impacts on the environment. Yeah.
1: Um, And especially like really the, the whole idea of like, what produced the mushroom is unchanged if you harvest, you know, any, any, because we're, we're after the heads or the, they're the fruiting bodies, yeah, I guess. Is yeah. the, so I guess that's not in theory really, I guess it's affecting the reproduction of, of, to some degree, but in a, a single person on the woods, I mean, not, uh, but this is kind of a big change from where we were going, <laughs> but I'm, I, with all that amazement um to bring it back kind of maybe into that uh nature you know the two opposing viewpoints of, sure. and go back to where we were talking about where you've made um at least a, a part of your living for since 2016 now and, and a much bigger part than i thought um from foraging as as an income stream um as As someone that owns a business and, you know, you're competing with whether you look at it that way or not, it's I'm curious about what the what the foraging industry is is like. And even in that five years that you've been in it, what you've seen kind of change and whether it's gotten easier, harder, what advantage you have. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: um, there's not a whole lot of people doing it commercially. Um, because there's some problems that make it difficult to do, uh, commercially. We talked about weather, um, before fiddleheads take a long, long time to clean. Um, so a lot of people don't do it commercially because of that. I don't have too much competition commercially. Uh, I'm noticing a huge spike of interest in people, uh, foraging mushrooms personally, there have been uh, like spots of mushrooms over that I have that uh, I, I'm expecting to see a hen. I saw it there a couple of days ago. I go to pick it up and it's gone. Um, so there's competition at like specific spots. As Does far that as piss you and, off? No, there's plenty. There's plenty out there. Uh huh. Um, but it me wars. off for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um,
2: but as far as fiddleheading, like that is like the bread and butter as far as commercially foraging. It's reliable. It happens year after year. You might have a short season uh, if you have an 80 degree day. The fiddleheads can go by real, real quick. Uh huh. Mm. Um, but. It's pretty consistent. It's something you can count on if you're having a tough time in your local area. Like I said, I've got spots that stretch from Connecticut to Aroostook County. So, like, you can find an area that they're doing well in. Mushrooms aren't always uh, the case, it's more hit or miss. Uh-huh. Last season was excellent because of all the rain that we had, but um, m- past few years have been pretty rough because of the severe droughts. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah like i said the little things that save time uh fiddlehead cleaner which is like a cage that has been built um out of chicken wire like wrapped around a box it's got a trap door i can fit like 50 to 80 pounds of fiddleheads in it at a time um throw that in a swift moving stream and it will wash all the onion skins right off of them in wow. minutes rather than spending hours
1: and hours trying wow to clean. Uh. Also, just pounds. a super simple solution. Like, yeah. yeah, going back to basics in every um, way. But a
2: lot of the folks that harvested uh, fiddleheads that used to be more competitive, but they're retiring now. They're getting older. There's not a huge, huge interest in doing fiddleheading commercially, from what I've seen. From younger from, people. From younger people. Huh. But um, mushroom foraging exploding. I was looking at the numbers on the mushroom group that I'm in on Facebook, like Maine Mushrooms is what it's called. Uh, Last year, it had 5,000 members. Um, One year later, it's at 14.5 thousand.
1: I mean, Uh, 5,000 is a lot more than I would have thought to begin. So that's that's not all people interested in foraging or people just interested in mushrooms? People
2: interested in mushrooms – I think the pandemic had a lot to do with yeah, that. People yeah. were encouraged to get outside. Yeah. Um, that's something that you could do um, and find really cool gourmet ingredients right in your backyard a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, with that, though, I've also heard there has been an increase in um people eating toxic mushrooms. Of course, <laughs> um,
1: yeah, of course. Calls yeah. to
2: poison control, things like that. Uh, but there's tons of great resources out there. The main mushroom group is great. Generally, if you put a picture up, people will help you identify it. Um, you shouldn't go off that alone, um, but that's another yeah. another source um, that you can turn to. And it helps me incredibly with the timing. So like the second uh, I see somebody post a chanterelle, I'm like, okay, I can check my spots. Yeah. Um, the internet's been incredible as far as that. Uh-huh. Um, I can join a, a fiddlehead group in Connecticut. And as soon as somebody posts a fiddlehead picture, I can drive down there instead of drive
1: down, check to see if they're out or not. Have yeah. To drive it's a long drive eight hours back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, that, that all, that's very interesting. Um, talk about like the, you know, in a real boom year, like, uh, cause it is, um, just talking about price pricing and like you get a a big honk and hen of the wood that you can bring in and also like the selling is interesting to me because you basically just you have i'm i'm going all over the place (laughs) i'm sorry let's talk about selling yes um and then we can go into the other places i'm sorry um you are not just as me i would hate doing it like there's no real like you know, it's, it, I just, you've told me like, you just kind of have to go in cold call these restaurants. I would hate that. And obviously eventually you get a uh, relationship with them, but how did you get over that hump in the, in the early days?
2: Yeah. That was one of the toughest things. I mean, like I the, have first, mushrooms. Yeah, the first <laughs> day I like, harvested a commercial level of mushrooms, I was calling business after business. Everybody was like saying no. Um, they're asking me how much my mushrooms are, and like, their gourmet mushrooms can range from like seven dollars to like I said, a thousand dollars a pound. A lot of these businesses that I were calling just did not have my price like in their budget. Yeah. Um. Once I started finding the places that were taking them, it was much easier. Um, and a little tip as far as the like commercial aspect of it that my father-in-law passed along to me is, um, you start with ramps, uh, ramps come May 1st year after year, no matter what, that's like the beginning of harvesting season, almost anywhere and tons of businesses, restaurants really like to buy ramps. So if you establish a Mm, relationship with the customer Uh early in the season, then if they bought ramps from you, they might as well buy fiddleheads from hey, you. They might this. as well yeah, buy yeah. mushrooms from you. And it's a lot easier to pop in and see if they might be willing to take something a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, the internet makes it incredibly easy too. There's a lot of folks that have interest in uh, mushrooms, but uh, are too afraid to make that jump themselves because there are mushrooms out there that can kill you or mm-hmm. give you a liver failure <laughs> or uh, all sorts of unpleasant things. <laughs> and are you
1: talking about like chefs? Uh, in that sense or just 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 people uh-huh. are, um, so, uh, so do you sell been, to individuals yeah, too?
2: i sell to individuals i sell to restaurants uh markets and food co-ops
1: what a rough very very ballpark percentage wise uh for your volume is, is that
2: yeah um most of the volume is fiddleheads because you're picking 100 200 pounds a day. Um, Those are generally going to mass produce markets. Um, Okay, Blackies and Luston uh, Uh is one of a a big one for me. Uh, Rosemont Market takes Uh a whole bunch of my ramps and fiddleheads. Cool. Mm. And then Mm. for like... um, Um, So I would say uh, on the fiddlehead side, almost 100% of that. It's not worth... I, I'll sell fiddleheads to friends here and there, but it's not worth um, setting up on the side of the road, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, I'd rather that seems sell, like a tough call. <laughs> I'd rather sell 200, 600 pounds in one
0: shot than uh, sit out all day selling. To a market, and then they will sell it through – they'll sell it individually through the market. Exactly. And you sell the bulk load to them. Yep,
2: so fiddleheads, mostly wholesale. Uh, mushrooms is much more uh, like – Consumer sale than wholesale, Um, unless you have uh, a really good year. Matsutakis are wholesale. Hen of the woods are generally wholesale. And Mm -hmm. oysters, I do wholesale, too. But um, chanterelles, black trumpets, they're found in small enough quantities that I'm selling them to friends, family, um, people who are interested.
0: (laughs) 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 Um, On the the restaurant side, do you sell directly to some chefs and have – Talk about if you can talk about specifically what those restaurants are and kind of get into that a little bit. That must be an interesting dynamic. But to Noah's point earlier about the work you have to do to establish those relationships that then pay dividends down the line, um, do know you and you're certainly much more introverted than I am. I was curious if uh, to Noah's point at the beginning, as you're starting to do that and set that up, was – That framework you talked about that kind of got you into all of this, like, I need to figure something the fuck out for my family and I need to do it now. Did that evolution to more of the commercial stuff happen in those early days, come through cold calls, and were you in that framework of kind of – that rock and a hard place thing where you, you had a kind of the pressure of I've got to provide for my family. And did that make it easier?
2: I'm sure that was a big nudger as far as mm-hmm. like making me jump out of my comfort zone. Uh call, cold calling was tough. But uh, I found that it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. And a lot of these chefs, once I found the right ones, were really excited about the product. So um, it more h- high-end like, restaurants where like um, the Wing Hill Inn uh, in Rome sold some there. It's like a bed and breakfast. Yep. Type so we're place. talking about Rome, Maine? just to be yeah, Rome, yeah.
0: <laughs> You didn't have to do that to him, baby. <laughs> oh, no, oh no, no, no I'm talking about <laughs> Western Maine, man. Yeah. That was
1: the first thing we bonded over was the farming. Community. But yeah, <laughs> the, the, the chef,
2: uh, I made a little page on Facebook to try to make things a little easier. I'm not sure exactly how he found me, but reached out and was like, do you have wild mushrooms? And oh, wow. I was able to start, uh, dropping some off there, which yep. was great because, um, a lot of my mushroom spots are right in Rome anyway, so.
1: Nice. Oh, that's just one swoop. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. The other, this is sort of like a more just anecdote, but uh, it was just something that almost summed up how, like, wild this whole thing is. Uh, this was sometime in, I think, the fall. Uh, you had mentioned you were driving into work, and you just spotted on your way, like, a gargantuan hen of the wood on a tree. Got it, and it was Worth like $600 or something. I, I can't remember. I'll let you. You know what I'm talking about, I think. So, yeah, explain what happened there because it blew my mind. Yeah, so
2: Hen of the Woods can go anywhere from, depending on the year, how abundant and saturated the market is, 8 to $20 a pound. Um, that one was probably upwards of 20 pounds. So if you got if top dollar. A little bit if you get top dollar for, for that mushroom, um, it'd be like $400, um, a single, single mushroom. (laughs) And sometimes you can find five, six, seven, I've seen 11 hen of the woods around one oak tree. Um, and those are one of the ones that grow back year after year. So So you mark that tree in your notebook. I've I've got a Garmin. I'll mark all my hen spots. Um, and each year just keep gaining a little more.
1: Wow. Wow oh man it's, it's wa- just
0: so cool i want to take it on uh as we start to to wrap it up i do want to take it into one place um that being beer and that being uh, uh what the podcast is about so also in looking at this i did not know yeast was a fungus by class um for starters and i'll stay away from the big 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 stuff but the thing about this that is so exciting to me is how it Kind of maps up to this bio manufacturing stuff that's happened that we talk about a little bit, and kind of, I've recently become a little aware of like essentially Noah could kind of confirm this that but like yeast is a little like single cell sugar powered micro factory that just kind of goes and it can take these compounds and and change them and and do what it does and that's that's how we have beer that we have here correct um yeah i think i I suppose so a fair (laughs) way to look at it and then i get excited on on the big side as as we start to understand these little cells and proteins and can start to make them produce the things that we want that's kind of this this open like this open pasture of incredible things that we can do but mycelium I kind of the thing I'm going to ask you is how similar it is to yeast. But mm. is it fair to think about it kind of in a similar way as what I just described to Noah, but in a multicellular fashion? Yes, hmm.
2: I would say so. Like mycelial mat is a, a, a digestive system, essentially. It's yeah. going <laughs> and it's breaking down complex materials. It can break down hydrocarbons. It can break down all sorts of different compounds. Um, Much more of a Swiss army knife yeast. but Can it break down sugar? I believe so. I I just mentioned to Noah the other day, I was actually on like this random, like home brewers post um, and it, he mentioned using oyster mushroom mycelium instead of yeast. That's what I was going to ask you. Um, And studies have been shown that, um, that it can create ethanol as a byproduct from breaking sugars down, I believe. Uh, but uh, I don't know if that can be done anaerobically or not yet. This guy was sort mm-hmm. of playing around with it.
1: Meaning you would, in theory, the only way to do that would be to constantly be adding oxygen exactly. to the beer. Uh-huh. Yeah,
2: because um, mushrooms breathe in oxygen. They exhale CO2. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. And, that's, so and then yeast they'd be a lot. Yeast. Just like CO2, there'd be, you know... Y- Yeast doesn't like CO2 either. That's why it shits it out, basically. Um, and then as, uh, it is, it's why, like, as fermentation goes, it gets harder and harder to finish it because the environment gets, with ethanol and co2 gets increasingly hostile hostile. yeah too so that makes a ton of sense
0: is yeast anaerobic and is that kind of why oxygen just like generally oxygen bad for beer or are those kind of separate ideas um it doesn't need oxygen to
1: function so yeah it would be anaerobic and that
0: would be the big hindrance point
1: is oxygen's helpful for its structure more than anything but it doesn't uh, need it as part of the process And
2: i don't know enough about it either but i do know that Mycelium. My guys. Can, <laughs> <laughs> I do know that mycelium can live like aquatically, like I mentioned before. So it can definitely end. Like, and you got there's those li-
0: oxygen molecules. You got two of them hydrogens <laughs> and one of those oxygens in there. And
2: there's a uh, liquid culture which uh, mycelium tends to grow in. Um, so it can grow aquatically, which is usually some sort of mixture of sugar uh-huh. and wa- water.
1: I imagine. When it grows um, aquatically, is it is it sort of like? Um, is it still on the, the the walls of whatever it's in or is, does it just sort of like snowflake around in, in the water, in the liquid?
2: I'm not sure how – I think if it has access to sugars, it can grow. Um, I'm not sure exactly how that process works. Huh.
1: But I mean there's so much
2: – There's definitely spores that are floating around throughout the water. Uh-huh. Uh,
1: for you, sure, it's you would mention that. Y- <laughs> yeah, exactly. You had mentioned that yesterday. And we just had a, a real busy day um, bottling and stuff, but I had not. St- I did not stop thinking about that the whole day. I was like, "What?" <laughs> um, but yeah, Um, and That's I guess just on one last beer thing, we, we kind of joked about it. But I'm, I'm, I am curious about feedback from anyone for who has had mushroom beers because I think the there is obviously like a like. Oh, mushrooms, but like even just you describing like it's so much more vast than, than the most people, including myself six months ago, understand. Yeah. Um, and Chantrell's was, was the thing that we, I, when I realized this was something you did started talking with you about and I had read, I think it was like in the, um, the radical beer book, I had remembered, uh, Chantrell's being mentioned and, but just this, a uh, very very distinct apricot aroma that like is mm. not at all what anyone associates normally with with a fungus you know that usually just so mushroom beer coming from us at some point just got to get it on the schedule but um uh i'd love to hear about if anyone Feedback. like because i there's it's i've never had a beer made with mushrooms like pure oh maybe chaga but that's mellow like and it's usually with other stuff yeah um so yeah no. not really a question but anybody more who's question had anyone it, listening email
0: yeah. us and would love to get some responses and talk about it on the next solo because it's And since dustin got into the flow i remember pretty early on noah asked hey mushroom beer hey um, limited and limited resources be, yeah, in Maine maybe. it's all
1: about that yeah baby um i do have one last thing before we three bay you out of here um do you think like the Association of just like magic mushrooms and psilocybin has like retarded to some level the just growth of of the the utilization mm-hmm. of mushrooms in general uh f- to some
2: extent, yes, because a lot of the general public who doesn't know a lot about psilocybin see this like counterculture and are afraid by it a little bit or think it's silly or not taking it seriously some of the people who are in it are the same way yeah um but at the same time there's a lot of people that psilocybin has tremendously um changed their life and that is one of the only reasons they got interested in mushrooms in the Uh first place and i don't know how you Quantify if that's like a good or a bad thing. Um, the knowledge being out there, I think there's a lot of people, Paul Stamets included, who wouldn't have dived as deeply into mushrooms as he has if
1: it weren't for. That uh, counterculture of psilocybin use, of literally mm. tripping, and then it opening up—not like the the Aldous Huxley doors of perception necessarily, but like that was—I want to learn more about this. Yeah. Not like I understand it all exactly. now. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. Mm. Do you think like the majority of leading researchers uh, were kind of inspired by that route by an experience like that
2: in mycology specifically? I, I would guess. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, a lot of the people I've read from are um, incredibly inspired by that. There's a whole bunch of psychedelic research going on in the fifties and then like come sixties that all God. just shut down and it's starting to pop up again at John yeah. Hopkins. And uh, that
0: was where the study was. John Hopkins. Yeah. That, that really legitimized it. And I know you didn't ask me, but I, well, sometimes I think about these things. I almost, I wonder a lot, just like marijuana um, just like mushrooms, if it isn't the early discovery of the medical benefits of all of this, that ends up getting, there's a it, reason people keep, Oh, they oh, ends up getting oh. it stimmied. Um, I really have developed more and more into that side of the equation over the last couple of years, but, but there is knows.
2: legislation right now in Maine is in committee to, um, use psilocybin as a medicinal yeah. uh, compound. Is
1: that just Oregon? That's legal. I believe so.
2: Uh, I know California tried to do it recreationally. I don't Oh, they I, went all I, in. Huh? I, I don't think. <laughs> but then Joe Rogan left and he
0: just abandoned it. He went to Texas and said, fuck it.
2: Wow. <laughs> wow. But no, I wouldn't be surprised if in our lifetimes it is definitely legal medicinally, perhaps recreationally.
1: Um, oh, yeah. I'd be shocked if if, if uh, in our lifetimes, if, it, if soon it was not no. uh, uh, medicinal you know, thing like everywhere, or more or less everywhere. You know, shout out Alabama um, <laughs> in uh, in the in the country. But I I think that like that's a whole bigger conversation. Oh, yeah. But something that's very interesting, and I think speaks to like the the conflict of the powers that be of of you know <laughs> the pharmaceutical interests can only have so much interest in shit that grows out of the ground. And but anyway, totally. Um, this was absolutely fucking amazing man i'm surprised i'm honestly a little surprised by how much i learned even by having talked with you quite a bit about this but i think it just speaks to like yeah there's no stopping the learning on, on this world no i am mean, just like
2: at the tip of the iceberg there's so many people that know much more than me on this we've got excellent people and mycologists in maine uh david spar literally wrote the book on like new england mushroom foraging mm. which is mm. uh, great resource for myself yeah um, yeah and
1: um would that be a good thing for people that were maybe interested in just recreationally getting started yeah to pick up
2: definitely looking for a book that's localized to your area because even these same species of mushrooms the chanterelles in uh oregon are going to look different than the chanterelles here in maine mm-hmm. uh, there's enough identifying features that if you were in either place and you know what you're doing you could confidently identify either yep. of them but there's morphological differences they mm-hmm. look pretty different depending mm.
1: on where they're growing cool incredible um well yeah thank you so much man uh, i think matt has a three bay queued up for you
0: yeah i was uh i'm gonna withhold my um my desire to give you mattis yahoo songs to oh. pair <laughs> with missel brother beers oh. <laughs> um a pretty basic one today pretty easy um but it makes the most sense. Mushroom, what's what's the uh, plural of genus? No, it's like no. beer, dude. It's either way. Genius. Yeah. Mushroom genus. <laughs> Genius. With, with Bissell Brother beers. Give us three um, and tell us why. All right.
1: Matt always criticizes me for not giving one of the the options. And here he is. Oh, no, just I should. I, out should. I should. Dry, That's dude. fair.
0: That is incredibly <laughs> fair. <laughs> I'm going to let you pick the mushroom genius. I'm going to give you the Bissell Brothers beer. All right. Fair. I'm going to give you Swish. I'm going to give you Precept. And I'm going to give you Just the Pits. Hmm. We've got a Hoppy. Reverse. A Hoppy beer. We've got a clean, crisp. Pilsner and we've got one of our beers here in Milo. It's a nice setup to work with. Won't hang them out to dry. <laughs> um,
2: I think I'd have to go with like Hen of the Woods for swish mm. uh because. It it pays my bills. <laughs> uh, but it, it's also an inc- in, in more ways than, than one. <laughs> one. Yes. It, it, it's also an incredibly delicious mushroom. It's one of my favorite to cook personally at home, and yep. I feel the same way about Swish. I'm still drinking a lot of Swish myself. Hell yeah, that's why um, it's that's still a really paying really the good bills there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I, let's hope so.
0: Well done, baby.
2: Um and then there is precept. Um Precept's one of my favorite beers personally, mm-hmm. um, so I think I would pair that with Black Trumpets, which I would have to say is my favorite mushroom to eat with a meal. I'm generally pairing Precept with a, with dinner. Um, uh, and oh, I like what's the throw. taste profile
0: yeah. of a Black Trumpet?
2: Yeah, it's uh, just powerful. It's, <laughs> it's smoky, um, Ooh. really savory. Um, uh-huh goes excellent with steak um almost anything cool. but yeah killer um and what was the last beer just that? the piss <laughs> just that the we pits. bottled yesterday all right i think i would have to go with chanterelles on that one mm-hmm. um uh, not forming the best connection it's like the ex-
1: incredible fruity aroma yeah um Honestly, yeah, that seems like not even the worst idea to add to just the pits.
0: Yeah, that's, how you, that's how you get that's how you kinda of get people weaning yeah. into mushroom beer. We're not gonna give you a cold mushroom first. take this peach beer with a mushroom accent. We'll get you there and we'll inch you along. Oh to-
1: man, got my wheels spinning now. Well mm-hmm. those were great answers and this this truly was fantastic, man. I I had such a good time talking to you about this and great way and, to uh, start a Thursday. Yeah, absolutely. This and, is fun. And um Yeah, just a wild world. Thank you for the knowledge, thank you for the time, and thank you for being you here. Thank you guys.
0: Amazing.